Welcome to Crash Course with me, Michael Walker. I hope you've all had a pleasant and relaxing Christmas. For this final episode of 2023, I'm taking a break from my series on the Gaza War and putting out a conversation I recorded back in September. Now, this was going to be episode two of my migration series, um, but as you may know, I ended up putting that on pause to focus on Israel-Palestine. This interview is with Jonathan Portez, who's a very interesting guy. Um, Jonathan was a very senior civil servant during the new Labour era and is now a professor of political economy at King's College London. Jonathan is also the author of the book, What Do We Know and What Should We Do About Immigration? That book and this conversation focuses on the history of migration to Britain and the economics of of migration and much of this interview is therefore historical we talked about immigration to britain from 1945 and also theoretical in particular the effect of immigration on wages and the the welfare state and other economic issues but we also spoke about an issue that's currently receiving a lot of attention in the news cycle that's record migration to britain Now, you may have seen in headlines last month that net migration for 2022 has been revised up to 745,000. When me and Jonathan spoke, the ONS believed it to be just over 600,000. That was already record-breaking, but not quite as record-breaking as we now know it to be. Me and Jonathan also discussed whether these numbers would cause a change in policy from the government in line with our speculation towards the end of this interview, the government has in fact tried to tighten up Britain's immigration regime, including by making it harder and more expensive for spouses to move to Britain. So that's two relevant updates um, since I conducted this interview. And with that all out of the way, um, this is my conversation with Jonathan Portes. Jonathan Portes, thank you so much for joining me on Crash Course. Thanks for having me. Um, I know we're going to go into lots of depth about the, especially the economics of of migration, but migration policy in general. To begin, though, could we talk a bit about you and and your career? Um, And I suppose, how have you, in your various jobs, both in the civil service and in academia, related to migration? How has it come into your work? Um, Well, it was largely accidental. Um, In about 1999, I'd already been a civil servant for about a decade at that point in the Treasury um, and other places, um, mostly working on uh, working on a variety of economic and domestic policy issues. Uh, but in 1999, I joined the Cabinet Office in a unit, a unit which subsequently became the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit. So it was doing sort of particular projects for the Prime Minister, Tony Blair then. Um, and I was in charge of a project called Strategic Challenge, which, which was sort of a horizon scanning exercise futures project. Uh, we were charged with writing a report on Britain in 2020, um, which I think is still quite interesting. Obviously, we got some things right, some things wrong, but has some interesting discussions about you know, what we expected to happen in the next two decades in terms of globalization, technological change, demographic change, environmental issues, and so on. Um, and I think uh, it's still around on the internet in various places. And, and I think, you know, I, I would say this, of course, still repays reading. Um, but uh, in the process of that, we did a bunch of sort of workshops, horizon scanning exercises, talking to experts, and so on. 
Um, and one thing which came out of that very strongly was this theme of the importance of immigration to the future of the UK from an economic, political, and social perspective. That, on the one hand, combined with the fact that government had sort of deliberately ignored this issue um, from, for the last quarter century or so, had, had sort of pretended that immigration was something that was a matter of history rather than a matter of current policy. Uh, you know, there were lots of people of migrant background in the UK in, uh, uh, in 1999, but there wasn't that much, or at least there hadn't been up until about 1997, 98, much new primary immigration. Um, and so governments had, had tried to largely ignore the issue. Um, and we were the first people in government to sort of sit up and say, hang on, actually, that's not going to be the case going forward. Maybe we should start doing some thinking about it now. Uh, so, as a follow-up to that project, um, I and my then boss suggested to the Prime Minister, well, let's do a project specifically looking at migration. Let's have a sort of in-depth investigation uh, of the some of the issues that come out of it. Uh, and uh, against the advice of some of the political advisors then uh, uh, who thought that they wanted to continue essentially with the same policy of trying to ignore it, uh, the Prime Minister quite liked the idea, so we did a follow-up report um, on immigration the, and in what we call the economic and social aspects of immigration, um, and we submitted it to the Prime Minister, who, who liked it and said, well, this is quite good, let's publish it, uh, which again was uh, uh, met with some reluctance for, on political grounds from within the system, um, but nonetheless we did publish it, and it was... Uh, you know, I think has been quite influential in terms of sort of framing the debate about migration uh, from a policies perspective over the 20 years since then. Um, and it sort of set me off, uh, you know, it gave me a sort of permanent interest in the topic. And I didn't carry on working on migration at that point. I went off and did other things. I came back to the civil service and worked as chief economist at the DWP, working primarily, uh, as one does at the DWP, on welfare reform and labor market issues. So migration was part of my job, but not the main part of my job by any means. But I kept my interest in it and I've, I've been interested in it ever since. And I've been written written about it and talking about it and both from a policy perspective and from an economic perspective uh, ever since. Yeah, and I think that that turning point of 1997 is something I hadn't quite sort of grasped before researching this series including reading your your book on the topic because i suppose because of the windrush generation and because of um ugandan east asians and because i grew up in a place that was very multicultural i've sort of assumed that migration was this continuous thing that's always been sort of happening to the uk and always been flowing in but as you describe in the book it was you know by the 90s and the late 80s there was a political consensus that Britain doesn't really want new migrants. Yes, there will be some people of ethnic minorities from those older waves and they will have children, but we don't need new people. That's the, these waves of migration are something which is over. I mean, can you talk about that consensus? How strong was it, this idea that Britain is not a country that migrants can come to? Um, it was uh, pretty strong. I mean, it wasn't, you know, we were never closed. You know, people could, did always come here um, for reasons of, you know, there were always work permits for highly skilled workers. There were always refugees. People came for family reasons. But uh, I think what it dates back to, of course, is the Enoch Powell uh, era, the era of the late 60s and early 70s, uh, in particular, 
um, the Rivers of Life speech in 1968, and partly in reaction to that, the you know, and at the same time, the Commonwealth Immigrant Regression Act of the then Labour government, one of the most racist pieces of legislation in British history, which essentially said um, you can come to the UK from you know the Commonwealth if you have a uh, a parent or grandparent who was British born, but not if not. So it was essentially designed and, and very explicitly designed to exclude non-white immigrants from the Commonwealth while letting in still uh, you know, Australians and, and some white South Africans and so on. Uh, so uh, um, there was this, uh, uh, um, uh, and, and that in turn, uh, there was then, of course, the East African Asian Migration, which you mentioned in the early seventies, where to his credit, Enoch uh, uh, Edward Heath uh, faced down Enoch Powell um, and people on in his own party who wanted him to deny entry to people coming from Uganda. Um, and there were other refugee flows, for example, from Bangladesh after the the, the uh, uh, coup and uh, uh, subsequent uh, um, civil war there. Um, but the this consensus that we didn't really want new primary immigration in particular of non-white people from the old Commonwealth became embedded and then uh, was sort of entrenched by Mrs. Thatcher, um, who in an effort to head off the threat from the National Front on the right, um, uh, made, you know, there was the famous, you know, people have a very reasonable fear of being swamped speech in 1978. Uh, and Thatcher introduced a number of Restrict further restrictions on immigration uh, um, and you know the various acts to, to control immigration and control uh, access to British citizenship in the the the, the 1980s. Um, so that did become quite entrenched, um, and also, of course, economics had some part to play. You know, immigration fell quite sharply when Thatcher came to power because we had, you know. Three, three million plus unemployed. There wasn't a huge amount of demand for labour migration to the UK in the uh, in the early 1980s. And so then 1997 comes around, New Labour enter government, you start working for government, or at least you start working on this issue for, for government. And the change is dramatic. So in the decade up to 1997, there's an average of 50,000 people, well, not quite coming to the UK, because that's a net figure, isn't it? Net migration is, is yes. an annual average of, of 50,000. Yeah. So that's people coming in minus people going out. So immigration minus emigration. Then by 2004, it's gone from an average of 50,000 to now 350,000. Now that's a very quick, quite dramatic increase. Was that uh, the result of a conscious decision by, by government that they wanted to, to increase net migration by that degree? Um, well, certainly not in the sense of numerical targets. Um, but I think there, there was a conscious decision to accommodate the pressures of globalization um, at, rather than to try and push back. Um, so when labor, you know, we, the economy was doing very well, labor demand was high. Um, there was a conscious view in the treasury that that should be accommodated and facilitated by making it easier to come here, um, you know, to work uh, for work permits. There was a conscious decision to loosen some of the more obviously um, restrictive and implicitly, if not explicitly, uh, racist provisions in immigration laws, particularly those which stop people, you know, uh, um, bringing um, families uh, or marrying people from abroad. Uh, so loosening what was called the primary purpose rule 
1997. Um, uh, so there was some conscious loosening, there was conscious accommodation. And then, of course, in 2004, uh, there was a conscious decision you know, to not to impose restrictions on people uh, who wanted to come and work here from the new member states when the European Union uh, um, enlarged. So it was a mixture, I would say, of, of some explicit and discretionary loosening, um, but a broader um, view that, look, there is these increased economic pressures for labor migration. We should accommodate them. That will be good for the economy rather than try and push back on them. Um, at the same time, of course, there was some fairly, you know, there was, you know, as there is today, um, uh, a crisis uh, or a perceived crisis with people coming in uh, off by irregular means across the channel, um, which led to um, some considerable you know, desire on the part of the government to try and tighten that um, and restrict that, uh, uh, culminating in the sort of the Sangat agreements between David Bloodkid and his French opposite numbers, which did temporarily at least significantly reduce the number of people coming in irregular fashion. Uh, so there, there was this combination, which I think has considerable resonance today, of uh, the government uh, actually running a relatively liberal, less restrictive policy on labor and economic migration at the same time as for you know various reasons, political, to trying to quote, crack down, unquote, on uh, um, irregular migration and people coming here to, to seek asylum. And so that, that Sangat issue, that was a reception centre, wasn't it, that was set up in Calais by humanitarian organisations sort of in coalition with the French government to sort of provide at least some basic services to migrants who had got to, or asylum seekers, sorry, who'd got to Calais and were waiting to find an irregular way to, to cross the channel and, and New Labour were not keen on this in a similar way to which the current Conservative government were not keen on this. Yes, I mean, you know, and, and, and I mean, you know, you can look at this in a variety of ways. I mean, I think one way I would say is that, look, that, that the idea that you can, you know, s completely stop irregular migration uh, from in a relatively open globalized economy like ours, where we have, you know, substantial travel links and where we're not that far from the, from a very large continent, um, is unrealistic. You can manage it, um, in conjunction with the French and others, um, as Blunkett and the French did success, more or less successfully do. Um, but the idea that this is a problem that you can completely er eradicate or that is just driven by evil criminal gangs um, and people traffickers is illusory. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's something that politicians like to say, um, but it's not really a, a sensible way of approaching the, uh, what, what is a genuinely difficult issue. And let, let's park the issue of asylum at the moment, because, I mean, the consensus you're describing sort of in the new Labour era, and to some degree it continued after that, but I think especially in the new Labour era, was that economic migration is very welcome, it's good for the economy. Um, asylum, you know, its, it's economic impact is more ambiguous. It, it, it's not being asked to come, it's not people being asked to come here because they'll fill certain holes in the labour market, for example. Yeah. Now, a, a critic might listen to this. You could even put them on the left or the right, depending on your perspective, mm -hmm. and say, well, the reason they wanted economic migration is not because it's good for British people at large, but because it's good for capital. 
what this does is it lowers the bargaining power of domestic labor. Um, the capitalists love it because they've got this ever expanding pool of people to exploit and then wages end up falling. Um, what's your response to that sort of critic of a, or that critique, sorry, of a, a positive approach to having high levels of economic inward migration? Um, my response is basically that, that um, there is not much evidence in the UK context to support that um, at any sort of aggregate level. Um, you know, when you analyze the impact of migration on wages, um, whether it's in the UK or elsewhere, um, you tend to find that the impacts are pretty small, even for the groups of workers who you might expect to be most affected. So, for example, low-paid or low-skilled workers in sectors with high migrant concentrations. Um, and, you know, you often get people saying, oh, it's just, you know, giving the sort of analysis you've just given in an even more unsimplified saying, but you're an economist, surely it's all just supply and demand. You've increased supply, you know, then, then that must push down the price. Uh, and that is just a fundamental misreading. Migration increases labor supply. That's true. Uh, but it also increases labor demand. Uh, and the net effects um, are ambiguous um, and you don't know what they're going to be ex ante. And yes, migrants take jobs that would in some cases otherwise have been taken by Brits. But migrants also directly or indirectly, because they too are consumers, they too are business owners, they too are producers, you know, also create jobs. Um, and those jobs may be taken by British workers. Um, and if you look at some of the sectors where the concentrations of migrant workers are the highest, it's not obvious that they've pushed work wages down. Um, you know, have I lost out on a job to somebody who was born abroad in my career. Yes, I can name several examples where I applied for a job and somebody who was born abroad got it. If you look at my own department here at King's, uh, we have a very, you know, most people um, in the Department of Political Economy at King's, I think, uh, were probably born outside the UK. Um, so that's a very high level of migrant presentation. Does that mean that my wages or my job opportunities are pushed down as a consequence. Well, that's far from obvious. Um, it's far from obvious this department would exist. It would certainly not be as successful as it currently is in attracting students and hence generating jobs and economic activity um, if it weren't for the availability of you know, our ability to hire people from abroad. If we restricted economics departments in the UK to people who are born in the UK, um, frankly, we wouldn't have much of an economics profession in the UK because all the good economics departments would be in other countries. Um, so, you know, now that's one particular sector and it's a special sector. So it doesn't necessarily apply across the board, but it illustrates that it isn't just about supply and demand. Um, and the evidence we have is that, um, on the whole, the, you know, there may be some, you know, and, and we shouldn't discount this. There may be some negative wage impacts for, for, for some people at the bottom end, and we shouldn't ignore those. But it's not most of what's going on. It's not what drives low wages in aggregate in the UK. It's not what drives exploitation in the UK. Um, and you can also see this by the fact that, you know, the sectors and the, uh, the, the areas of the country that where, you know, low wages typically are lowest and our job opportunities are weakest aren't the areas where the highest concentrations of migrant workers by a very, very long way. Um, you know, it, 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 there just isn't that observable correlation. There's a cause and effect issue there as well, isn't there? Because obviously, 
if you are a, a migrant coming to a country, you're more likely to go to the place with the highest wages. So it might it, it might not be that, oh, there is, you might not expect there to be a correlation between a high degree of migration and um, low wages because migrants choose what part of the country to go to depending yeah. on the wage level. That, that's absolutely right. And that makes, uh, you know, doing these sort of, the sort of economic metric analyses that I and others do to try and identify the impact of migration on wages quite difficult. You're never quite sure what the causality is. But insofar as we can unpick it, we don't find much of an impact of migration on wages. And certainly not, it's, it's not the, the key driver of wages. It's not the reason wages are stagnating in the UK. It's not the, the reason why people who are low paid are low paid. I suppose another reason why, um, again, you can call them left-wing, let's say economically left-wing and potentially somewhat socially conservative people might have a problem with um, large degrees of economic migration. They might say, well, if we're just talking about supply and demand, maybe on aggregate wages aren't necessarily affected by the supply and the demand curve. But what if, for example, high levels of migration make it harder to unionize or make it harder to maintain support for a strong welfare state and that capitalists quite like that you've got a more uh, a population which is more fluid, let's say, and which is 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 changing at faster degrees because that might make it easier to divide the working class. People often point to the United States as sort of a country which is uh, a country that's always had very high migration and has struggled to build and sustain a welfare state, and then point to the European continental nations which have historically had less migration and have sort of stronger unionization and stronger welfare states. How do you respond to that kind of argument? Um, well, I mean, I think, you know, if you're going to point at individual countries, it, it's quite easy to point to counterexamples, right? You know, compare the Amer- American Canada, who has a stronger welfare state and who has higher, which has higher levels of migration. Canada has significantly higher levels of migration than the United States. Um, so that sort of case comparison doesn't necessarily make the case particularly. Um, I think it is hard to look at the um, sort of decline of trade union power in the UK and see that as being driven by migration. We, we, you know, we look at, if we just look at the historical record here, it's not the um, post-1997 period that saw uh, the decline of trade unions in the private sector in the UK uh, uh, um, at all. Uh, we can, you know, the, the, the direct uh, sort of political and institutional factors which have driven you know, trade unions in the UK uh, uh, obviously predate that. So that that I think just doesn't add up in the UK context. Um, more broadly, I mean, I think one sort of notable thing about the trade union movement in the UK um, is that uh, uh, um, the... Uh, you know, that, that, that trade unions in the UK, in contrast to, say, the US, have actually had a relatively liberal pro-migration, uh, you know, with, with some dishonorable exceptions over the last half century. But in general, the UK trade union has been much more open to trying to integrate migrants, uh, regardless of origin or ethnicity and so on, into its ranks and to being supportive of them than have trade unions in quite a lot of other countries. And I suppose, I mean, the last few questions I've been asking you, I'm somewhat playing devil's advocate because I am very positive towards migration, Mm. economic or otherwise. I'm from a very multicultural area. I love living in a very multicultural city. Mm. I suppose my uh, a question which I more genuinely 
hold, you know, which actually reflects some uncertainties I have, is at what point would the cost benefit analysis stop? So sort of on the the section of the left that I often inhabit, it's not a question of do we have um, the current level of migration or less, it's do we have the current level of migration or more right up to the point of, of, of no borders. And I suppose where I don't know where I stand is at what point a level of migration could um, reach whereby there would be, you know, significant negative consequences for a existing domestic population that would be difficult to sustain and I suppose you know, difficult to support on some level. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you know, in a world that is divided into nation states and where the nation state that we inhabit is a, you know, a liberal democracy where the people who are here now um, and have been here a while, uh, um, regardless of whether they were born here, but who are citizens, um, you know, uh, 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 that is the form of democracy we have. I, I think it's unrealistic to say, suggest that open borders uh, as a policy is anywhere near a realistic option any time in the sort of politically foreseeable future. Um, so I tend to regard, you know, I, I, you, know I, you can say I'm dodging the question, but, I, you know, it is because I'm primarily an economist and policy analyst rather than a political philosopher. Um, and in, what I would say is that the, the you know, the, 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 within the sets of what is politically, you you exhaust the set of what's politically feasible before you get to to what's economically uh, disastrous, as it were. Um, So I think where that leaves us, um, you know, if you are both trying to take a sort of economic analytical look um, and trying to uh, uh, um, work out what is, is working out, well, what's a sense, you know, something that gives you uh, something that is, um, sustainable within the, the, the current political framework um, is broadly in line with what we would consider liberal or progressive values or whatever you want to say, um, and delivers something that is economically beneficial to the majority of current residents, including particularly those at the lower ends. Um, and so, you know, my the sort of analysis that I tend to do tends to be within those constraints as opposed to doing the sort of thought experiment, which some other economists do. And I don't, you know, uh, uh, um, I, I wouldn't want to downplay it, but it's not my area of the sort of thought experiment or what would open borders look like in a political and economic sense. Um, so I tend to sort of think about, well, you know, what are the effects of particular sets of you know, changes to the current system, making it more or less liberal, more or less restrictive, what would be their economic and political and social consequences of that? Yeah, I know one of the people who who sort of does those broader thought experiments is Brian Kaplan, I think, and he sort of says that if you had yes. completely open borders, it's basically like picking up trillion dollar bills from the street because it would it would raise GDP by such vast quantities because the productivity of a huge proportion of the world would be dramatically increased because they've gone somewhere with very little capital, say in the poor world, to somewhere with yeah. lots of capital in the rich world. I suppose where I um, uh, differ with him is he's quite relaxed, I think, about that potentially undermining support for the nation state, or he's also quite relaxed about sort of differential uh, rights for existing citizens and and newcomers, because I think he's sort of on many ways to to the right of the political spectrum. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts. On yes, that. That, that that's true. Although uh, you know the actual the trillion dollar bills on the sidewalk phrase was actually co- coined by Michael Clemens, uh, um, 
Brian Kaplan picked up from. And Michael, to be fair, I think is is not on the sort of libertarian right, uh, 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 unlike Brian Kaplan. Um, he's probably closer to where I would be, um, although he is much more out there in terms of the, the sort of scenarios that he's prepared to to examine. But, you know, I think, you know, someone like Michael combines the, the doing those thought experiment type analyses with also trying to come up with much more sort of practical policy oriented solutions that are feasible within the current political dynamic. So you can, in principle, do both. Now, I know I know you say, you, you know, you're an economist, you do economic analysis over political yeah. philosophy, but I suppose a, a political question, which is somewhat unavoidable here, mm-hmm. is, is what you mentioned earlier, which is the New Labour's decision not to implement transitional controls on migration from Eastern Europe. So as far as I understand it, when Poland and other Eastern European countries joined, many countries in the EU said, well, we're going to apply, what was it, two-year transitional control so people can't... Up to seven up years. Up to seven years that people wouldn't be able to have free movement from those new countries to the existing countries of the EU. Britain decided not to do that, um, which I presume not only had an impact in the short run because it meant that lots of Polish people came here sooner, Polish and other Eastern, Europe- Eastern European people came here sooner than they otherwise would, but because we got that head start, you build up a big Polish community in the UK, which you know means that you will have more migration over the long term to the UK as yeah. opposed to, say, France or, or Germany. Now, again, I'm uh, I'm from an area that has very high Polish migration. I always, you know, I, I enjoyed having sort of new people coming into um, the sort of cultural dynamic in in East London or the cultural mix, however we want to put it. Many people in the country had different views. Um, and many people judge that decision um, to be one of the drivers that led to Brexit. And I think also, I mean, you might correct me if I'm wrong here, but the sort of conventional wisdom here is that the government vastly underestimated how many people would come. So people say they thought it would be in the tens of thousands and then 800,000 came. Do you see that decision to, I mean, that very consequential decision to not implement transitional controls as other European countries had done? as a mistake? Um, I mean, I don't see it as a mistake from an economic point of view. Um, some people, you know, obviously there are lots of people in the Labour Party who think it's a mistake from a political point of view, um, that then I'm not in charge of the Labour Party. Um, I mean, what I would say is that there are some misconceptions flying around. I mean, in particular, the idea that, um, you know, remember... Transitional pr- controls did not apply to free movement in the sense of controlling entry. They only applied to free movement in the sense of being able to legally work here. That is to say, we were never in a position to stop Poles and other people from uh, the new member states from entering the UK as they wished and living here. What we could have prevented them from doing was working here legally. Um, and so a lot of the motivation for the uh, um for not imposing those restrictions was simply the view, uh, which I still think was broadly accurate, that even if we had imposed traditional protections, quite a lot of people would have shown up and would have worked. And we had very little in the way of enforcement capability, either in terms of resources or, frankly, motivation to enforce the rules against illegal working. So we would have ended up with a large pool of illegal workers, um, which frankly, I do not think would have been particularly good from any perspective, economic, political or social. So uh, um, uh, that was one of the big motivations for taking that decision. And I think it was quite a, you know, a, 
quite a powerful one. Um, the second big motivation for taking the decision, which is, you know, is the fact that actually we had lobbied very hard to get these countries into the EU. And for quite good geopolitical reasons, Tony Blair had invested a lot of political capital in both getting them into the EU and building up good relationships between us and the new member states, because they were seen as potential allies within us for us within the EU on a whole bunch of issues. Um, and I think it would have been a little hard, and he certainly would have found it a bit hard to have turned around, well, you know, we're very happy to have you, Poland, in the EU with us, joining with us, hopefully voting with us on this issue or that issue. But actual polls we're not so keen on them you know polish people coming here we'd rather not have them uh i don't think that would have gone down that well so i think you know at the time i thought the decision was the right one and i thought that there were some good arguments for it um you know whether it led to brexit i think is a uh, a question that, you, of course, we'll never know the answer, but you could certainly make good arguments. It was one of the the, the driving forces. Uh, so there are, there are certainly good reasons why some politicians think, in retrospect, it was a mistake. But I think there's uh, there are some misconceptions as to why the decision was taken in the first place. Yeah, I suppose I, I hadn't really thought about that sort of strategic element as sort of New Labour were very keen or Tony Blair was very keen on those Eastern European countries joining and this was sort of a, a mark of, of, of a commitment to making that work. But I suppose, you know, a critic again could say, was that a moment of neoliberal hubris, right? You've got a, a Blairite government who I imagine, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I imagine wanted some of those Eastern European countries to join the EU to water down some of the sort of commitments to social markets that were coming from France and Germany. So they wanted those Eastern European countries to join to create a more liberal and neoliberal EU. And then also with their sort of neoliberal optimism, believed that you could have sort of vastly increased mass migration because it made sense in terms of the aggregate economy, um, but not paying much attention to sort of the possibility of, of popular revolts or, or how certain communities around the country might e experience that. Do you think it was, it, would it be potentially reasonable to describe that as a sort of moment of neoliberal hubris, which ended up coming back to bite the Blairites in the arse when it came to Brexit and the like? Um, uh, I, I'm always a bit wary about the word neoliberal because uh, as somebody observed yesterday, um, on September 11th, neoliberal is used as a term of abuse to refer to everyone from Pinochet um, through, to, uh, 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 through to Tony Blair. Um, and, and that obviously, when you make it so broad, is not terribly useful. Um, but leaving that aside, um, yeah, I think there probably is an element of truth there. Blair wanted to reshape the, the EU. The Eastern Europeans were seen as, as potential allies, and they were um, in, in some respects uh, um, in the first decade or so of their membership. Um, and there were some negative domestic political consequences. So I think there, there's some truth to, to all of that. Um, equally, I think that, you know, uh, uh, a, a lot of the um, um, reaction to um, the migration from uh, um, Central and Eastern Europe um, exaggerated those negative impacts uh, and, uh, um, you know, we, th those of us who did the research and looked at it should still push back on the idea that, you know, Eastern Europe, you know, that, that it was migration, particularly migration that was responsible for low wages or poor conditions or any of a bunch of other things which government could perfectly well have tackled had it wanted to. Mm -hmm.
Let's talk about immigration since Brexit. Now, most people, I mean, I think you know, lots of people, including myself, quite reasonably read the Brexit vote in, in many ways as a backlash against freedom of movement and potentially the level of migration that was taking place at that point in time. Um, that led, I think, again, understandably, people to expect that migration to the UK would probably decrease um, after Brexit. In fact, net migration, again, so that's immigrants minus emigrants, is at an all-time high. So last year in 2022, I can't believe I nearly forgot what year it was there. Um, in 2022, net migration was 600,000. So that's a, an absolute record. So from your perspective, what's going on there? How have we got to a position where you know, freedom of movement's ended, the government has got control of migration? That was, of course, the big slogan, taking back control of the Brexit vote. Um, and now there is a higher level of net migration than ever. What's How did that happen? Well, I think it's an absolutely fascinating story. Um, you know, so Vote Leave said, you know, we're, you know, migration is too high and it's too high because of free movement. Um, and therefore, what we're promising to do is to end free movement and introduce a new system um, that lets us decide who's going to come here on the basis of skills and who we need and so on. Um, and when pressed, they said, well, you know, we're not going to talk about numbers. You know, what we're promising to do is introduce a new system under which we have control. Um, and uh, there's no question that that was a popular policy, that free movement was in general unpopular, that people liked the idea of control, then people liked the sound of this new system. And it's also true to say, I think, as you've suggested, that most people, or not both sides, expected that would reduce, would lead to a reduction in migration, even though that was never explicitly promised by vote leave, nor was it inherent in the design of the new system. Um, and uh, so uh, leave one, um, and Theresa May, who, of course, um, while she had been on the Remain side, had been the most anti-immigration member of the Cameron government and had spent a lot of time trying to reduce migration as much as possible as she could while we were still in the EU. And she saw this, well, okay, um, let, we're going to end free movement, That's gonna re- and then we're going to have this new very restrictive system, or as restrictive as possible. Um, we're going to try and essentially level down and apply the same sort of conditions to Europeans that we previously did to non-Europeans and hence reduce migration um, as much as possible. Um, And what happened was uh, that that, however, um, despite her intentions, got um, squeezed, first of all, by the fact that once Europeans started stopping coming here, even before the new system was implemented, but because they didn't feel so welcome here because of the Brexit vote, uh, labor market pressures began to grow. Uh, so the system already began to loosen a bit just under those pressures. Um, and then when Boris Johnson came in, um, he essentially, um, they, they said, well, actually, um, we, want quite a liberal system. And so rather than a leveling down, uh, what we got was a sort of leveling in the middle uh, where we introduced a new system which was designed to be considerably tighter for Europeans because of the end of free movement, but considerably looser for non-Europeans because the new system was set at this sort of intermediate level for skills and salary. Um, And uh, so that was the policy intention was this sort of 
leveling in the middle. So still doing what Vote Leave had said, but not trying to really tighten overall by nearly as much. And then that, in turn, collided with the pandemic, uh, very large labor shortages, as well as special factors such as a large flow of refugees from Ukraine and the decision to uh, uh, to allow people from Hong Kong to come here under a new special visa. And so you had all of these things at once. And so what we ended up with was a system which has in practice ended up being considerably more, far more liberal than Theresa May or the anti-immigration bit of the Brexit coalition wanted, um, and somewhat more liberal than I or the Boris Johnson liberals uh, or anybody else, um, even business, uh, really expected. Um, so we've had a system which has actually led to quite high levels in historical terms, levels of labor, migration, people coming from work visas, um, quite high levels of refugee migration, despite the, uh, uh, um, the, the crackdown for, you know, uh, for, for people coming over the channel, but high levels of refugee migration from Ukraine, Hong Kong, and, and some people from Afghanistan. Um, and then high levels of student migration as well, because uh, um, universities have successfully replaced people coming from Europe with people coming from, uh, in particular, India and, and other countries. And all of that has sort of happened at once. Now, those high levels, you would probably seeing a peak at the moment, there'll probably be some fall over the next couple of years, uh, because the number of people coming as refugees will will drop. Um, but you've still got these this this labor migration system, which is is relatively liberal. And I suppose when, when you say the number of refugees will drop, our audience will be thinking, well, how, how can we possibly guess that? But I suppose you mean because of that one off decision when it comes to well, Ukrainians, I mean, and that yeah, one off decision when it comes to people from yeah. Hong Kong? which I think added up to 172,000 yes. people in 2022, just to read out the numbers in front of me. So in the year ending December 2022, there were 235,000 people who came to the UK for work purposes, 361,000 who came for study purposes, 51,000 people via family reunification, 29,000 other humanitarian routes, 172,000, which is Ukraine and Hong Kong, and then asylum, um, 76,000. So that's sort of how it how it broke down. Um, during the Brexit campaign, there was sort of a, an appeal made by the Leave campaign to ethnic minority voters to say, at the moment, it's very difficult for people outside of Europe to get access to the UK. I think there was a cap of 20,000 on yeah. non-EU working permits to, to come to the UK. And what Vote Leave said was, look, if we leave the EU, um, we'll no longer give preferential treatment to European countries. And that means we're going to be able to welcome in more Indian workers, more West African workers, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I think at the time, um, there was a big dismissiveness towards this. And actually also, I think people sort of looking down their noses at ethnic minority voters who did vote Brexit, thinking, what, God, what idiots, how you, you've, you, you've voted for a racist campaign, this is going to be thrown back in your face. In fact, it seems like they were probably one of the few voters for Brexit who actually did get what they wanted. Um, because it is now the case that way more people can come on work visas from India and, and West Africa, just to take two examples, than when we were in, in freedom of movement. So have have ethnic minority voters for Brexit who voted for that reason? Obviously, people vote for all different reasons. But if if one was of an ethnic minority and voted for Brexit because they thought that more people from where they're from, um, more connections might be able to come and work in the UK, if they did it for that reason, 
correct. They were they had great foresight. Um, I, I think you know uh, there's lots of nuances and wrinkles there, but the, the broad answer to that is yes. Um, you know, as you say, uh, lots of people were very dismissive of of this attempt by Vote Leave to appeal to ethnic minority voters, um, but. Um, to the extent that there were certainly were some ethnic authorities who just felt that it was unfair that, you know, people, say, from India, Pakistan or Nigeria with their historic connections to the UK had to pass through these very difficult hoops, whereas people from U- the Bulgaria, Romania could come whenever they wanted. Um, that, quote, injustice or, you know, has been ended. They are now treated the same. And the result is that there are very, very, as you say, far larger numbers of people coming from places like India and Nigeria than there were uh, six or seven years ago. So in that sense, yes, they they have been vindicated. I don't think that was necessarily, as you say, it wasn't the main or the only reason why uh, some people from an ethnic minority background voted Brexit. But to the extent that that was was an argument, it it has in large been vindicated, yes. And do you think that will remain the case? Because I suppose what one might think so is is that the government set rules which were fairly liberal let's say there's no longer a cap so there used to be a cap so you would for for, for non-eu migration when it came to economics so you would you you would know there wouldn't be more than or significantly more than 20,000 what's happened now is the government have set a sort of more liberal regime with no cap and it's turned out that lots of people have come and do you think it it might be the case that the government keep recalibrating this and say oh actually uh, we want a few less people next year, so we should probably tweak these rules a little bit, and then you'll end up with this coming down, not necessarily for, let's say, organic reasons, because Hong Kong and Ukraine were in some sense a one-off, but because the the government is tweaking these rules, which they were like, oh, actually, it was too liberal. Let's let let's let's make it stricter than it was. Is is, is that a possible future? Uh- that, that certainly is a possible future, and that will depend both on economics and public opinion. Um, uh, and the government has already tweaked the rules to some extent, you know, on dependence of people, of, of, of students coming here for master's degrees, for example. Um, so there will be uh, tweaking. But I think, you know, the sort of broader context, you know, in less, and, you know, who we don't know what will happen politically. Um, there clearly is a sort of social conservative wing of the Conservative Party, which would like to see much less migration, even at the even at a significant economic cost. Um, but uh, and it's possible that wing of politics could take power. Um, on the other hand, uh, I think that you know what Brexit has done, perhaps paradoxically, has made. It more important rather than less for the UK to have a relatively open immigration system because it's one of the few cards we have, right? You know, we've chosen to make our trading relationship with the EU more difficult and to exclude ourselves from the main trading, the two big trading blocks or the three big trading blocks, if you count China, of the world. Um, so, you know, and how do we make that? That has some economic consequences, but you know, which you we could spend a whole other hour to, talking about. But I think one of the sort of obvious consequences of it is is, is that it does sort of give a premium on being us, uh, making us a sort of relatively open, nimble player in the areas where we can in prioritizing our relationship with countries like India and Nigeria, which are outside the big uh, trading blocks um, and. Um, with 
making the most of our big strengths. So what are our big strengths? Our big strengths are we speak English, we're, we have London, we're really good at, you know, business and professional services and sort of high tech, high value, ser- the high value service sector. Higher education is the one sector in which we can claim to be absolutely world leading and punching far above our weight. So, you know, how do you make an economic strategy that's based in large part around those comparative advantages work? Well, not by having a really restrictive migration policy, right? So now, you know, you can maybe make your international trading strategy work, international economic strategy work if you're Japan without having an incredibly liberal immigration policy because for None of the things which I've just said necessarily apply to Japan, right? But they do apply to us. Um, so, uh, yes, we could swing in a very liberal direction at some point. Um, but the economic pressures um, against that are pretty powerful, I think. Um, so, you know, um, take the current negotiations with India about a free trade deal. Um, now, I, you know, there's a lot of rather silly talk about how we have to make all these concessions to India to get a free trade deal. That's basically wrong. And the reason it's wrong is because actually that was true five years ago. But actually, we've already made those concessions because we've had, we have this very liberal system. The Indians are pretty happy with it. Of course, they want more. The Indians always want more, like every country does in, when they're doing trade negotiations, but they don't want a lot more. So that's not the point. But are we really going to tighten restrictions in such a way that will cut the number of Indians coming here to work and study by 50%, um, knowing what that would do to our relationship with India, uh, which is going to be one of our more important relationships in the next 10 or 20 years. Um, again, it's possible we could elect a government which wants to do that. But I think the economic and political pressures against actually doing that are, are going to be pretty strong, frankly. So, I mean, as you've said, when it comes to the future of migration policy in this country or to this country, um, public opinion is going to be very important. And I suppose I, I wonder from, you know, an economist that's worked often in government on issues which are often politically contentious, how you feel you have an understanding of what affects public opinion when it comes to migration and, and, and the swings, because there has been remarkable swings in it. So in 2015, concern about immigration as what people put forward as one of their top three political issues um, peaked at 71%. Now, I think that was partly um, due to the, you know, the European asylum crisis um, because of the Syrian civil war, maybe other reasons as well. And um, then after Brexit, it fell dramatically um, down to 22% just before COVID hit, now edging up. So currently 39% of people think it's a top three issue. So, you know, various theories here. Is it just when the tabloids decide they want to make it an issue? Is it when the conservatives or or a political party, some political entrepreneurs decide they want to make it an issue? Or is it to do with the genuine ebbs and flows of migration and different forms of migration to the UK? Um, where do you stand on that? Um, I mean, I think that the, the short answer is that we have quite limited understanding of what the factors are here, frankly. Uh, um, and I'm not a political scientist, but the political scientists who work on it, I think, would say it's a bit of everything. 
that there's clearly no monocausal explanation in the sense that it's clear that immigration concern doesn't just go up and down in response to changes in immigration levels. It's not a pure sort of uh, uh, what they call in the literature thermostatic response, high immigration equals high concern, although that may be one of the influences. I think that there is, it's probably fair to say that the Brexiteers were right in the, those Brexiteers who said, you know, some of the political salience of this issue is driven by people feeling that they don't have control and their more control will um, improve the state of public opinion. Um, and I think, although it's very hard to show in the data, to be honest, that instinctively I tend to think there is something in that. And equally, you know, a sense that the, the concern about the, uh, the channel migrants at the moment is not about, or at least not a, 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 you know, a, among the majority of the people who are concerned. Obviously, there's a racist fringe. There always has been. and There still is. Um, but the majority of the isn't, you know, oh, I hate Afghans uh, uh, or I don't want Afghans to be here. It's a sense that people are coming in an uncontrolled, irregular manner rather than through the official channels. Um, even, and, and you can blame the government quite rightly for not actually making the official channels work. Uh, and, and that's certainly my view and the view of most people in the migration sector. But nonetheless, it's not unreasonable for people to say, well, look, uh, people should be coming here through some sort of regulated fashion, not in an unregulated one. Um, so I think control is a big is, is almost certainly part of it. Um, and clearly there is also a sense in which the tabloid press, uh, or not just the tabloid press, actually, uh, I should say the right wing stroke anti-immigration sections of the media and the press, uh, drives, uh, public concern on this. Uh, to some extent they're responding to what their readers are concerned about, but they're also creating that concern. And we, and I think there's plenty of good evidence that that is part of it. Um, and then finally, I think people do also respond to sort of general labor market conditions. I think there, it, it, you know, there is a set, you know, some, some truth in the fact that when people see shortages in the NHS and care sector of workers, for example, they are a bit more relaxed about people coming here to work. Do you think it's also, so I mean, this is very speculative. I have no evidence at all to suggest this, but sort of, I suppose from, it seems somewhat intuitive to me that why potentially EU migration became more contentious than the current even higher levels of migration is because it was incredibly visible. So there were people in in towns that saw that actually there were lots of people coming from the same country and Polish migration was very visible. You could see a change in the community. Now, even though net migration is above 600,000, because people are coming from everywhere, Lots of them are students, so they're actually coming generally to places which are already multicultural. I'm not sure how many people have actually noticed that net immigration is at an all-time high because, you know, it, it, visually nothing has changed. Whereas when it was a situation where lots of people are coming from the same place and they're going to places which aren't necessarily already multicultural, you can see how that is easier to sort of exploit politically than than the situation we were currently in. Obviously putting aside the the channel crossings which are very easy to politically exploit um yes i think that that's clearly true i mean it's clearly true in some places and you you know, it's famous you know places like boston and lincolnshire and, and some others are often cited as as examples of this uh, places where there have been relatively low levels of recent migration until 2004 then there was a fairly stunned large influxes um and and yes and i think you're you're clearly right that there are places like the places we both live 
where actually, um, you know, uh, uh, you have, you, you, you're just used to relatively rapid population turnover one sort or another. Um, and so a few more people coming from a few different countries, well, you sort of shrug and say, oh, I didn't realize that, you know, we had an Uzbekistani community in this particular part of London or whatever. That's interesting. And, and shrug and, you know, go about your business. Uh, so there certainly is some, some, some element of, of, of that. Uh, finally, to sort of c- close this out, we've talked about the effect that immigration has on this country. Um, the effect that emigration has on other countries where people are coming here, um, also a pretty important topic. I mean, I know you were saying that the Indian government are lobbying for more visas for Indians to come here. Now, I suppose that might surprise some people because they might think, well, why don't the Indian government want the most qualified Indians to stay in India and help that economy grow? Well, what's in it for them if they've got a brain drain, essentially, of Indians coming to, to the UK? First of all, overall, India has a ample and arguably oversupply of highly qualified people. Uh, second, that um, to a large extent, what the Indians really want is the ability of big Indian companies to bring people over here. So the, the, the uh, um, Tata um, Infosys, indeed, the uh, company uh, uh, partly owned by the, uh, the prime minister's wife, um, these companies are by far the largest users of the work visa system in, in, uh, um, in the UK. Uh, so there's, you know, if, if you want uh, evidence of a capitalist plot, uh, there is a little bit of it around there. Um, um, but, um, more broadly, in India, at least, the evidence is pretty positive about the impact of migration on development. Uh, you know, why is Bangalore the Silicon Valley of India, well, it's partly because so many Indians went to Silicon Valley. Um, some of them stayed, some of them came back, but one way or another, that connection between Silicon Valley and Bangalore was established and in, until it became self-sustaining. So you have uh, these, these, the, these creations of transnational networks that actually facilitate trade, investment, and knowledge flows and are beneficial to the, uh, to the home country. Um, with, uh, with countries like the Philippines, you have essentially, uh, a business model, uh, that, of development that, that relies on people being, you know, that the Philippines trains more health professionals that it consumes and, and people, uh, leave. Some of them stay in their countries they go to. Some of them come back. Some of them send money and so on. And it's perceived as being broadly positive for development. So overall, I think the evidence is reasonably good that migration is generally beneficial to to the sending countries as well. Now, there are specific aspects of it which aren't, um, the most obvious being trained medical professionals, not typically from India or the Philippines or the main sources of, of migration to the UK, um, but particularly from some countries in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, it prob- and, and, and the NHS does have codes of practices and so on on recruitment, but that doesn't stop people from those countries coming here. Um, so that is bad for those countries. On the other hand, it's not clear what we should do about it, right? We're not going to help the, uh, the Sudanese uh, health service uh, desperately in need of people as it is by saying to a Sudanese doctor who's managed to get here, no, you can't practice here or you can't get a job here. Uh, there's a reason that person left Sudan. And it's not something we're going to help directly or we're going to solve through immigration policy. 
so that you know that 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 is a danger, but ultimately it's not something you can do very much about through immigration policy, in my view. Great. Um, that was really interesting, um, really comprehensive. I suppose actually just one final question, just about your career, and I suppose the interaction between academic mm. research and and policy making. Or I know you don't make policy, but input into policy. I suppose are there any sort of strong examples from your career where you've predicted something and then reality has just completely surprised you? So you've sort of said the models say that. I mean, I suppose especially when it comes to migration, but you could bring in other things here. You know, your model suggested that this amount of migration would do this, and then the complete opposite has happened, and then that's really caused you to, I suppose, question the assumptions you might have been initially using. Um. Well, I did think initially in 2004 that we'd see larger and more significant negative wage and employment impacts than we in fact did. Um, I, you know, despite being a general sort of liberal pro-major, I thought, look, this is quite a lot more people than we expected coming in a much shorter period of time. Uh, you would expect to see at least in the short term, see some, some significant impacts. Um, and we were quite surprised that we didn't. Um, so that, um, surprised me. Uh, other examples, I mean, uh, um, on the political side, I've certainly been surprised by, you know, as, as we were discussing before, if you'd asked me or any migration expert uh, five years ago to predict net migration in 2022, um, you can bet that none of us would have predicted, would have been not only would we not have been at 600,000, we wouldn't have been any, at anything like 600,000, even within our sort of 95% confidence intervals, right? So I don't think there's any doubt at all, uh, that, uh, that, that, that we would have failed to predict that. Uh, so that's two sort of obvious examples of, 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 of things where, where I've been surprised. Um, and, you know, I, 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 think in general we tend to say that that forecasting migration uh, is 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 a mugs game and one should try and avoid doing it where possible because it is just very difficult to forecast but that's one of the things that makes it uh, makes it interesting brilliant um, thank you so much that was incredibly interesting and it's really good to get um all of your insights from you know a very as i say illustrious career working in this in this field so thank you so much for joining me on crash course thank you That was Jonathan Portes speaking to me about the economics of immigration to Britain. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any episodes and support us on Patreon if you want to help make this podcast possible. We'd also really appreciate a review on whatever podcast app you're listening to this on. For now, you've been listening to Crash Course with me, Michael Walker. Crash Course is produced and edited by Lewis Bassett and Patrick Herdman. Patrick Herdman does the sound design.